everyone, this is Connor. Before we get started, I just want to encourage you to check out our Patreon, patreon.com slash podsidepicnic. If you become a patron, you'll get access to multiple exclusive episodes every month. And you can also join our patrons-only Discord chat, where Pete and I talk informally with the Podside Picnic community. So if you like the show, go ahead and check us out at patreon.com slash podsidepicnic. Thanks. Take a face of action. Side picnic. I'm here once again with the R2D2 to my uh, C3PO. <laughs> I can't do the beeps. <laughs> yeah, I mean, you know, you're the, you already did the Chewbacca thing, so you're you're good. Um, but we're back here, more Star Wars month, and rather than discussing a specific story in the Star Wars universe, we are taking a, a, a grand view. Some might say a strategic view of. <laughs> military strategy and tactics in Star Wars, and we are very blessed to be joined by probably among people currently living one of the top experts on this topic. Uh, he is Kelsey D. Atherton. He is a defense technology journalist. He is the co-founder of Grand Blog Tarkin, and he's the co-host of a podcast we've discussed on here before, People's History of the Old Republic, Photor Pod. Kelsey, welcome. It's great to be here. Cool, and honestly, I'm excited um, because I know I'm going to learn a tremendous amount from you, uh, because you're a, you're a military guy, uh, in a, in a, in a really intensive sense. And you know, Star Wars backwards and forwards, uh, you're going to, you're going to brush me off and say, I'm, I'm giving too much credit, but I really think this is true. <laughs> no pressure. <laughs> sure. Sure. Well, I know a niche aspect of Star Wars in more depth than this, perhaps healthy, I would say. Well, you know, you're in the right place to learn niches in ways that are unhealthy. That's that's the kind of what our podcast is all about. So, so if it's all right, I'd like to start off the conversation by throwing you an easy one, Kelsey, which is well, at least I hope it's an easy one. Uh, like uh, we see what what brought Star Wars into the mix for you. Like uh, you, you're obviously fascinated by and devoted to all of it, uh, where did that start? Sure. So, I mean, the the baseline interest in Star Wars, right, is when my parents showed it and I was hooked. Um, I think I even remember back at, God, it was Price Club before it was Costco when they had all the big screens up front and they were showing, like, Return of the Jedi had just come out on probably Laserdisc or something. I don't know. Um, and I remember seeing that and that was just captivating, right? It's a, a the visceral lived-in real world um and then like my parents showed me at an early elementary school age the uh the original trilogy and then it was just enough time for um to be like late elementary school when the special editions were coming out um in theaters and uh that was delightful before i like was able to revisit and later go i was like hmm, these changes not not so necessary george um <laughs> but like from that point on i was sort of hooked in the universe, I would like pick up the comic books. I read um, uh, 
bunch of uh, like the Young Jedi Knights novels, like paperbacks I'd pick up secondhand and things. Um, and so it was a universe that sort of captivated me in that space um, around like the special editions and before uh, the prequels came out. Um, and it was also like at that time where I was uh, making the uh, very good and normal and healthy choices of getting deep into like magic cards or like Warhammer and Starcraft um, and things is like, well, what about what if instead of focusing on stories and characters and the way people improve, I focused on um, massive battles and the way that forces destroy each other and tear them apart. Um, and I've sort of been hooked <laughs> on that trajectory um, ever since. So it sounds like what you're saying is the, the fact that you are a defense reporter does owe something to an early interest in Star Wars. I mean, it certainly might, right? Like, I think um, I was very much like at the same time I was captivated with Star Wars, I was like going over to friends' houses and watching um, like Battle of Britain and like all the World War II dogfighting movies and all of that. And I was, I, I grew up and uh, still live near a uh, major Air Force base. I'd see like fighter jets overhead and I was fascinated by the machines, which are, like, elegant when they aren't, you know, doing sky murder. Um, and I think <laughs> I've just sort of forever been interested in the the things that go into making um, the the design, the research, the engineering, the, the functionality, the utility of these things. Like, it's, it's elaborate technical projects, and then um, we see them, and we see them used uh, um, invariably in the news towards... Uh, horrible or questionable at best ends. Um, and we see them used in Star Wars. It's very clearly like the Star Wars is, uh, especially uh, more recently, unsubtle about um, that war is a horrific setting. You can have heroic narratives through it, but war itself is a fundamentally horrific setting. Um, and yeah, so that's, that's sort of been a big, big part of it. And uh, my, my day job is describing... Um, is reporting on, describing, explaining, and uh, approximating the future of robots at war broadly um, and the way humans will use robots and develop them and all that. Um, and it's interesting because Star Wars only dabbles in places like, what do we think of droids? What is the role of droids? Who is ultimately responsible for, for them? They're broadly treated as... Um, sentient beings that can just be discarded at will and more disposable, which is its own whole other weirdness. But that's the space I've been in. Cool. Well, I was going to say, like, you started down this path of, like, the, the moral uh, ambivalence and horrors of war. And I was like, but Kelsey, it's OK to rain death on the Empire, right? <laughs> well, yeah. So that's 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 one of the, the fascinating things about Star Wars, right, is it's, I mean, when you, there's, obviously, I'm sure you guys have addressed this already, and uh, with a recurring theme in Star Wars is you have this sort of noble story of heroic rebellion um, in a personal sense, right, against against the uh, family who devoted their life to harm and power, but also in a broad sense of, right, like the government um, is a totalitarian nightmare, um, and you see it in expanded universe stuff. You saw it expand it, and even in the text of the film, there's a lot about right. Like this is a human centric empire in a universe with a range of sentient beings, um, and what they use that power for is uh, is murder at a scale pretty unprecedented. Um, and so, 
it's a fundamental question. It was something right that uh, like my my upbringing growing up in the in the sort of pacifistic quarters of Unitarian Universalism space is like, well, what do you do about force when it's clearly evil out there that is doing murder and uh, what what is the response? And you know, you stick it to Star Wars and you devote your life to writing about why uh, the Battle of Hoth was actually a, a success and is underestimated. That's fair. Um, as you've been talking through this, I've been thinking of that about that weird space where you're in. On the one hand, you there's this rich fantasy lo- realm that we all love that you work on in, and at the same time, there is a um, uh, like y- you're dealing with the real thing at the same time and like there's there's a lot of there's there's a dark place we can go with that but one of the things i'm thinking about is sometimes i'll be reading a science fiction story and i'll reach their clever moment and i'm like oh shut up like that's not happening a a good example is there's a fairly famous short story where this guy uses um he's he's in his uh spacesuit and he's separated from his ship and all he has is a flashlight. So he uses the flashlight uh, because, you know, light and basically uses the light of the flashlight to push himself back towards the ship. And my immediate reaction to that was, well, why doesn't he throw the flashlight? What the hell? Right. So that's what I'm wondering. Are there moments where you're watching uh, the military or war in Star Wars where you're like, no, 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 no. Like a real army would not do that and you people are insane and what's going on? Or do they do a pretty good job of like having fantasy realism? What do you think? Well, so I think the the thing that is crucial to it, right, um, is that when if we were to look at what space war would actually be like, it would be um, impossible to film. Um, I think fundamentally. And so like (laughs) you have what you would have, right, is you would have missiles with a whole bunch of automated systems and decoys and all the stuff that goes into missiles. And they would be hurled at planets um, across light years. And what war would look like is occasionally a planet would explode and someone would come by and do forensics and figure out what the hell happened. Um, that's interesting as a physics problem. Um, the stuff that we see interest like with uh, with weapons in orbit and all that are not weapons in orbit, but unknown military vehicles of some purpose in orbit uh, around Earth is interesting. But none of it makes good cinema, and so you have to accept that what we're going to see in Star Wars is going to fit the conventions of the medium, and it's going to con- fit the conventions of genre. And um, a lot of it is fantasy, but also really like. They are World War II movies abstracted to space opera. Um, and so, like, that's why you have capital ships and fighters um, as primarily, like, your space battles. And when we look at, like, what happens on the ground, you get that... You get basically, right, you get, like, infantry battles with weapons that are easily analogized to, to like, a GI's kit or what you would see in a typical... Um, like post-war World War II movie about that. And so um, so if you accept the genre, right, like the stuff they do is interesting. Um, and I think the stuff, and and you get to see very interesting spaces at play. Um, there was a project, this was 
this is going to date it, but I think it was in early 2013 where Danger Room, um, which was the uh, RIP Danger Room, it used to be this really good military technology and like critical eye at the military blog and site that was part of Wired. And they did a really fun thing where they just played around with the Battle of Hoth and they like... Was Hoth well fought? What was going on? Um, what is the point of an ATAT? The R Walkers stupid in a universe where people can fly is the Ion Cannon cheat. And they just played with it. Um, and er, that was early in Grand Blog Tarkin's life, so we got to play in that space too, which was pretty great. Um, we did like a back and forth in the exchange there. But I think what you're seeing with the battles, right, is an interesting way of. Um, Looking at the command decisions of the people who are making relevant choices with what technology they have on hand and with what um, they decide to use, and you have to just sort of put it at the back of your mind, right? They're not doing orbital bombardment for plot reasons. They're not doing this or that for plot reasons. And that aside, it's, it's, it's fun and interesting, I think, to, to play around in that space. So, okay. This is all very interesting conceptually, but I'm going to ask you some fanboy questions here. Uh, <laughs> who is the best military commander in the entire Star Wars canon, in your opinion? So, the I'm going to uh, do a little bit of a cop-out and say there's a few different levels of, of military commander to look at and the sort of different things we're looking at. Um, I think if we're looking at, like, the best battle commanded is probably Akbar in the uh, Battle of Endor, the second Death Star. Um, it helps, right? You want to look at your, your, your commanders as the winningest ones. Um, that they were able to still fight through the trap is a pretty uh, a good moment. That they were able to stick to a plan that had... Uh, what we would say in the gross jargon of the Pentagon as multi-domain operations where you have um, like there's a battle happening on the moon and there's a battle happening on the start on the death star. And then there's the whole space. Well, um, Akbar, Akbar comes across looking pretty good. Um, I think if you're looking at who was able to put pieces in place that managed battles, well, um, the best one we see in film is probably Mon Mothma, the leader of the rebels who was able to, um, and she's, Barely, barely on, on screen, but we see her through now Rogue One, through Return of the Jedi, do enough to put the pieces in place that allow the Rebels to um, do regicide against the Empire, and that turns out to work well enough. Um, in fiction, outside, so like the expanded universe stuff, and I guess also in Rebel Show, Thrawn is probably the most interesting commander Um he he has a lot compelling about him. He's an interesting character. He does some very interesting big moves, plays and maneuvers. Um, I think uh, it was a really good move in um, the 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 sequel trilogy to put uh, Leia Organa as the as General Organa. I think that shows a really good emphasis and that the persistence of resistance against uh, fascism and then neo space fascism is good and shows a long sort of strategic foresight you don't get a lot. Um, and then I have to give a special thought to Tarkin, who uh, is a monster, um, but the Tarkin Doctrine <laughs> is the only like plan the Empire ever puts forth that is um, seems to address 
a problem of perpetual insurgency in the galaxy. Um, his solution is is uh, super weapons and destroying planets, um, and that's uh, nightmarish. Um, but it's also we that the Empire keeps reverting to that indicates that there's really no one else who's thinking about how to actually come to an end other than the constant levels of warfare we see. Right. right. What's, what's the, the what's the military, military strategy, strategy term? term? It's, it's kind of like, like wind conditions, but that's, that's not that's not exactly it, it, is it? I mean, wind conditions is close enough. I mean, it's the what you have to get a you have to force a surrender. You have to force a capitulation. You have to come to an end state, right? You have to have there has to be some end state in the conflict, and the thing. Um, that Star Wars was not intentionally talking about, you know, decades-long insurgency, though it comes about um, in an America post-Vietnam, which had just witnessed a, what was then the longest, close to the longest war <laughs> abroad the U.S. had fought. We, um, we tend to overlook the occupation of the Philippines in that, but it was certainly a very long war, and for Vietnam it was decades longer. And so there's a, so it has that sort of floating in the milieu, but, um, what you see, right, is that insurgency, like it's, it's, we get a story, um, and we especially get it with the uh, sequel trilogy, of the Rebel Alliance had a vision of what victory looks like, and the victory looks like the Emperor himself is gone, um, and then after that, it's a extensive mopping up operation of regime loyalists. Um, but... You don't actually get that, right? You see the First Order emerges. You see that the the uh, turns out that warlords don't just give up when their nominal boss goes away. Um, and you also see that the Empire doesn't ever really finish it off. Like, right, the conceit of the fiction is it needs the war to work. But the interesting part here is that insurgencies are super hard to destroy, Um Tarkin's strategy, the Tarkin doctrine, as which is like comes from an old Star Wars like role playing book and then floats up into other stuff, is that if you can coerce rebels into surrender by making the stakes of rebellion so high that you will destroy any planet rumored to be harboring them. Um, and in theory, what it works is right is that after Alderaan, they just keep doing this to other planets until the people on the planet uh, proactively kill rebels themselves um, and no longer host rebellion um, so that they can avoid the threat of, you know, planetary annihilation. Um, that is a strategy that has an end state in mind. Um, it's also, yeah. you know, it, 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 there's a reason it doesn't work um, and it's, but the, but no one else in all of Star Wars really envisions sort of what an end state of the war looks like. Well, I mean, it doesn't work because they end up facing the return of the Jedi. I mean, you know, otherwise, like, I think it's fairly sound as long as you're willing to accept the destruction of planets with the, which the Empire has decided they are. And they're just that kind of people, which is what makes them such, you know, unassailable bad guys. We're not questioning their badness. Right. Like um, and like it, you know, it. 
it's interesting to me is when you're talking about the Tarkin doctrine, I think what's fascinating is when you're, you're saying that a lot of the world, the Star Wars battles, especially the original trilogy, are sort of drawing on World War II movies. And I was actually thinking of Age of Sail because it's a, you know, it's a setting where you have both gun battles and sword battles on the ground. You have like a lot of sort of just lawless open space that people are sailing around and you have a lot of pirates and smugglers that are being worked into the main war. Like it, it reminds me of like old naval battles like that, too. Um and then what's interesting about it is you have that as sort of the basic ground rules and the Tarkin Doctrine explodes that literally because it says we're not going to do, you know, we're not going to do the Napoleonic Wars over and over again here or whatever. We're just going to start destroying entire solar systems if we have to. Right. And it's an interesting um, and I think it's one of the things that is World War II had far more dynamic shifts um, and then, uh, and we think of it right, as these big state-centric wars as having lots of shifts, but insurgencies rarely do. Um, they sort of they're, they're they're exhausting slogs where most of what happens is the same things to varying degrees. Um, and so Tarkin is an attempt to force the question, um, to force, and it, it it forces it. The rebels show up, and it turns out um, that star destroyers are. Uh, destroyable and repeatedly destroyable. Um, but it forces the question. It, it brings the war to a point where you will have a conclusion. Um, and that's interesting because otherwise what you get, right, is you get a you get the sort of uh, frontier wars of empire where there's the part where the empire is pretty unquestioned in its power. There's the sort of periphery where... Um, the empire is nominally in power, but like the huts are in charge or you're like sort of lawless or whatnot spaces, as you would term it in the weird terminology of DC, the, um, the edge of where rule can reach. And then you have stuff that is beyond that sort of where you can send like punitive expeditions, but you can't do more than that. And so star Wars is really like, that's what the empire, the empire fits into that imperial mode, um, very well. And then, we just happen to see it from the perspective of a bunch of hotshot fighter jet pilots. <laughs> so, um, one, uh, when you were talking about the different generals of notes, uh, one, one you of course mentioned was Thrawn and he had a, he had a criticism of the empire's fighting style that it was over reliant on, uh, force senses. And basically it was like a top down, uh, emperor is an absolute charge. So when something happened to him, it all fell apart. Does that does that fit into the movies to you? Do you think that's a, a reasonable critique? Well, so I think one of the things that um, that makes Star Wars like interesting in this space, right, is that it's 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 portrayed, right. You have these big this big conflict, this this galaxy wide rebellion, this galaxy wide empire, and then variations in the uh, prequel and sequel on that. But fundamentally, the other thing about it is that we are looking at it in the wrong way if we're looking about it as like a state and an insurgency exclusively, because it's also a state led by the dominant strain of an internecine religious war, um, trying to exterminate fundamentally all the other rivals of that religious sect, right? Like the first thing the emperor does upon assuming power in the prequel trilogy is exterminate the Jedi, um, which is not what you're like. It, it's, a, it's a weird form of state consolidation, but like the Jedi were the only rival power center and he was very concerned. Um, he's 
Obviously, the Force users care an outsized amount about other Force users, and so you get into that that focus. Um, and so, like that, that Thrawn is used as a as a vessel to critique it. I think it's one of the things that's really interesting, right? Is um, and we see Tarkin say this in um, A New Hope. He talks about like the the cult or the religion. I forget the exact line, but there's something dismissive to Vader about like how will Vader, sir, like you're like the lone one of the lone practitioners of space magic left, but your religion is dying out. Um, and so they're trying to approach a strategy in a very different space. They are, they are, as you will, thinking as a state instead of thinking as a theocrat. Um, and there's something to it. I think it's interesting. Um, I think it, it, it is the part that maps the least well onto the rest of the world. Um, but it's definitely something <laughs> in the fiction that's really fun, is that you have space wizards fighting each other and you don't really um, see the consequences you see the consequences of that, but you don't really see the perspective like what if the possibility of what if we had rule by people other than space wizards? Um, and that's something that we're getting into um, in depth right now in Futorpod as we go through Knights of the Old Republic 2, which is a lot about like the Jedi done fucked up. That is all they have ever done. The world is about to collapse because of that. Yeah, the Jedi, I think we've just uh, over this month, we've learned a lot about how the Jedi and the Force in general kind of really suck. Um, and like, <laughs> I, uh, I have a couple, um, I, okay. I kind of lost my train of thought there, but I was just thinking about like, uh, Thrawn. I think it's important to note, by the way, for some of our listeners know who Grand Admiral Thrawn is. Um, Pete and I have been reading Heir to the Empire, which is the classic Star Wars novel that's set right after the end of Return of the Jedi, basically where Thrawn is basically de facto the main guy in the what's left of the empire. And he's this uh, brilliant strategic and tactical genius who makes these credible maneuvers. And what's interesting about Thrawn is that he does it by judging his enemies culturally. He knows what alien race is commanding, like what flotilla or whatever. And then he makes his moves based on his knowledge of their art, which is really interesting. <laughs> um, I thought that would be good to fill in people that didn't know that's, and I think that's like, that gets to my broader point about like, you're talking about the, uh, the space wizards rule and how that collides with and relates to the high technology of this, you know, space civilization that we're dealing with. And like the Thrawn thing, again, you're like what Star Wars lets itself do and I think does so capably is layers in these different like just sort of entire different ontologies almost that all get smushed together into this grand galactic war. And it's like, well, it's kind of brilliant, right? Because if you want to have all of these different ways of viewing things try to coexist, they're not going to coexist. There's going to be a gigantic war that's so big it explodes entire planets going on with these competing visions of power and ethics and everything else. Um, and like the the I think Star Wars like it's so it we so take for granted the way that magic and high technology are sort of melded in this story. But like the, one of the reasons that Star Wars has been so culturally dominant for forty years is because I'm not sure any story has managed to layer in what I'm going to call different ontologies like that across these, you know, this vast canon and this vast narrative universe. Does that kind of make sense? It does, and it makes it... Um, it I mean, it builds, right? It, it is, for all, like, for a, a story set um, in year 19 of a galactic purge and imperial consolidation, right? That's what A New Hope is. That's... Um, that's the gap between A New Hope and uh, Revenge of the Sith. 
should not feel as optimistic as it does. I think they, I mean, and there's obviously Lucas playing in mythological tropes and he's doing that, but he manages to graft this really straightforward hero story into a universe that should not support it. Um, and then it does, um, and it does it to varying degrees of quality through the varying movies, but it works, I think, because you have the notion of um, the Force as a thing beyond it, and they think that despite the Imperial Command of Logistics, despite the fact that it can create uniform fleets and mass-produce TIE fighters and put stormtroopers in every conceivable locale, there is a thing beyond it. There is a thing that the Empire itself cannot reach and cannot do. I mean, it isn't just like, right, because the closer, like, if we were to look at, like, what are the analogies for long wars like this, or even long wars with religious sex, what we get is that you have, like, a few years of fighting, and then you have a long period of everything is just shitty and there's violence. Um, Star Wars, like, if you look at, like, films made, right, about, like, the 30 years war or something, um, awful, unpleasant, not like, I'm sure there's good quality cinema there, but, like, the, the experience of it, the, it's not a fantasy people throw themselves into, it's a niche interest, it's a niche field, um, it's, it's not a pop cultural touchstone, and you can't do that if the war itself is, like, well, most of this decade of it was starvation and disease. <laughs> yeah, that doesn't make for great drama, uh, unfortunately. It just makes for sadness. Um, yeah, I mean, I, okay, I'm going to ask another fanboy question here, which is, uh, let's get down to it. What's your favorite battle in Star Wars? So I think um, the battle of, of Scarif, which is the one in, um, it's the concluding battle of Rogue One, I think does a lot really well. It sort of captures the, it captures the scale also of the universe better than anything um, except possibly the uh, the Battle of Endor. Um, it does the thing where you have a dedicated team that you're really interested in on the ground. You have the, the moment where the fighters um, fly through the open gate um, into the planet through the open shield. Um, mm-hmm. And then there they are, and like they're, it's very exciting, right? Like the the um, here is the the cavalry moment. Um, cultural connotations of that aside, um, here is the the heroes have arrived. They are saved, but then like what they're saved is it means other people are trapped in this pit with them, and it's all going to go badly. There's like a moment of elation, and it just prolongs the moment before the end of it. But you get to see a lot of really interesting stuff. You get to see. Um, squads against vehicles you get to see uh infantry support weapons that like you would expect to be more prevalent in the universe um you get to see the way that the fleet interacts um with sort of an objective other than just destruction um just really one of the best done moments in it um similarly the little fight in rogue one um where uh we're the small one with, like, the, the small squad around the tank is a really good moment. Rogue One is the closest Star Wars comes to being a straight-up war movie. Um, and I think, like, it's... Uh, whenever the rankings of Star Wars films goes around on NatSec Twitter, uh, Rogue One floats way above everything um, for 
a host of reasons, but a lot of it is right. It, it appeals very strongly to the, ah, yes, this is like my bridge over the river Kwai, but Star Wars kind of thing. I am so glad to hear you say that because, as you know, <laughs> I love Rogue One and I'm glad that a real Star Wars head can recognize its brilliance. And I want to ask Pete what he wants to get in here because I feel like I'm dominating the mic now. <laughs> oh, well, I I feel like in this episode I keep going to weird places, but I mean, I have an opportunity to talk to somebody who's really thought about these movies from a military perspective. So I kind of want to get my goofy questions out there. So... Um, Droids are a thing, right? So it, it is possible for the Empire to build um, absolutely obedient, sentient creatures. So, like, why why are they making little robots? I mean, is there is there a reason beyond it would make the plot dumb to not take a Star Destroyer and make it sentient and absolutely obedient? Yeah, um... <laughs> What? Yeah. So, I mean, the the obvious reason I think, right? Like, we have to like the there are there are the constraints of what you could do with film in in the seventies when they're making these first, and then like, oh, but what if we just animated robots that are all the same? And George Lucas went in his own weird direction. It's like I don't have to work with actors or puppets. I can just work with computer models. Great. Go 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 play Starcraft, George. But um, they're, they play with it a bit more, um, and this is where you see something like this um, in the in the uh, I guess the ancillary media. You see it um, a lot more. They play with it in some of the books in the expanded universe. They definitely play with this in um, in the Clone Wars shows, um, both the the original like very short two uh, D animated and the more modern like three D animated. One, they play with it in a bit, but I mean, like, there's no good reason for the Empire to just have a clone army. The The assumption you could if you wanted to put forth a thing is that they wanted people who can think and act more independently, but are still um, loyal to it. And then the other thing, which is uh, hinted at and is becoming more explicit in fiction, is that they designed the clone army as a... Um, they have their, right, the clones are bred in the space of a decade. You get to uh, basically functional military age... Um, people, but in their in their early twenties is where they start, um, and you see that in the Clone Wars show. But they they hyper accelerate their age so that they will just all die. Um, and if you wanted to go deep into it, that would be a form of coup proofing, where if all your military establishment or the the broad the this vast army they are creating out of whole cloth to fight, um, if they have a lifespan of thirty years total, then you don't really have to worry about your generals getting bitter and trying to take over. Now, that's really okay, interesting. Okay, that's fair. Oh. <laughs> no, go ahead. That's really interesting. It gets to something I was going to ask you earlier, actually, when you brought up Tarkin. Um, I'm sure there is a very quick factual answer to this, but I'm interested also in exploring dimensions of what this means. Uh, does First, I'm going to ask, does Vader outrank Tarkin? You know, I'm sure there's a technical answer, and I don't know. I think the way I think Vader exists outside the formal leadership structure of it, um, which is one of the things, right? So the closest way I could say, right, um, and this is going to be like a rough analogy, um, and obviously I'm sure someone who has Wikipedia open right now will be able to just uh, tweet at us why it's wrong. That's fine. Thank you for. I'm going to try to check, but keep going. I'm going to try to check. <laughs> um, yeah, go ahead and check. But one of the things. Um, it feels to me that 
What Vader is, is a envoy of the Empire. And so it would be like the president sending a special ambassador to a combatant command. And so like the combatant command um, is the formal structure by which the United States has divided the globe to military areas of responsibility. It means that there are generals in charge um, and there's a command structure all the way up to there is a staff and a general or admiral in charge of this part of the globe. And they are the foremost military authority on it unless directly contradicted by the president or by, um, I believe, by an order from the joint chiefs. Um, but there's but that's that that's the chain of command, right? The service heads are the only higher military authority, the Secretary of Defense, the President and the Secretary of Defense would be clearly higher. And so what Vader when Vader is on the Death Star talking to Tarkin, it is more like he is sort of like an undersecretary where the rank is unclear, the line of responsibility is very clear. The Vader Vader is a direct report to the Emperor, um, and Grand Moff Tarkin is probably also a direct report. They are probably co-equals, but because they are in the Death Star, which is Tarkin's, which is Tarkin's designated domain, he would be in charge. That's my rough read on it. If there is an answer, I'd be happy to know it. So I looked it up, and there's not a simple answer. In fact, uh, in in strictly military terms, I think Tarkin would outrank Vader. But like you said, as far as I could tell from a quick scan, it kind of looks like Vader, as you said, exists outside the hierarchy, and it's almost like he's we couldn't really call Vader a civilian because he does so much battle command and like, he's not, you know, he's not a civilian. Although again, he almost fills the role of like, you know, uh, before we had secretary of defense, just secretary of war or, uh, you know, CIA, like civilians who really get their hands dirty, you know, strategically and stuff. Right. Or maybe well, like, think- um, we might also see, right. We have, there are militaries um, in existence on earth, which have weird parallel command structures. Um, one, like, Example I'm familiar with, right, is that Iran has two parallel military structures where they have the formal one that is under control of the civilian government. And then they also have the Revolutionary Guard, which has a direct line to the revol- to the uh, to the Supreme Leader, um, yeah. to the Supreme Ayatollah. And so that would be a like you sort of have a parallel path um, and then it's up to parsing, which uh, makes for great dramatic tension and a horrible figuring out chains of command. Yeah, actually, Iran, the more I think about it, I know a little bit about Iran, and that actually sounds like a really great analogy. Good, good point. So basically, Darth Vader is like Qasem Soleimani. <laughs> right, who does his own thing, and then sometimes it's in conflict with what the actual formal military of the country is doing. But by and large, it's in concert, and they work it out in, you know, behind closed doors. Well, and historically, like... Uh, as a culture, we don't work with empires a lot. And so like there's a way to interpret this that I'm pretty comfortable with, which is like Vader may not outrank Tarkin, but sometimes he can speak for the emperor in the right points. As the emperor's voice, he outranks everybody, but he's not being him at that point. He's being a tool. Yeah. So I think that's the thing, right? Is I think like as an envoy of it, right? So like, one of the things, right, we see, and, like, we see when, like, a general gets recalled, um, like, when McChrystal got recalled, right, he got recalled for undermining the authority of, of the Obama administration, um, and and that was a thing, right, where he was the commander there, but this, but ultimately, the, like, and so the envoys who heard it could not, but they could dispatch back, and you could have a whole thing, and you could play up and down the parallel chains of command between, like, the diplomatic corps and the and the military corps and all that but really yeah i mean it's best the easiest way to think of it right is that vader is a special agent of 
the emperor who was really like fundamentally just a a heavy, a hired killer who got promoted into this weird middle management position that he hates, um, <laughs> but is doing it because that's what you do. Um, that's the path forward, and that is, um, and that's how he's able to maintain his freedom within the organization. Right, and I think what's interesting about it is is one of the things that Star Wars clearly dramatizes is the exact problem of the centrality of the Empire, which of course is probably the best analogy in modern memory is the problems that that caused Japan during World War II, having this rigid, like quasi-religious hierarchy that you're then also trying to run an efficient modern military with like good middle managers, as you said. And like Vader, Vader comes out of feudalism and he has his own domain. I mean, he is a battle commander and he has his own star destroyer and all these things. And it just seems to get in the way ultimately. And then when the emperor dies, according to the later canon, the Timothy Zahn novels that Pete and I are reading, like, Emperor dies, everything falls apart, and that is, as th- you know, in Thrawn's eyes, that's the fundamental problem uh, with the imperial structure to begin with, right? Absolutely, and one of the things we see, right, um, is that right, in the New Hope, is that it's the tension between Tarkin, who is later like it's fleshed out, but he rose through the officer corps ranks um, to do it. And the Tarkin doctrine, also, like the big part of it, right, is that you use Death Stars to threaten planets for with annihilation for hosting rebellion. But the other part of it. Um, is they remove this, the, you get rid of the Senate as part of it, and you hand control over to planetary governors, and planetary governors are, and like, and then sector governors and all that, is basically like a galactic version of the COCOM system where the military commanders on the ground outrank um, the other government officials, and that is the hierarchy up which you do, which you climb up. Um, and which you use to hold in place an empire. You have this this military chain of command that goes up, and then others. And the emperor sits outside of it weirdly. Um, and it's one of the questions that we'll fundamentally see, maybe resolved a little bit um, in Rise of Skywalker. Um, is what actually is what actually is the nature of the emperor post um, post the Battle of Endor? Is it like? Uh, we saw in the Zahn novels with Thrawn where it's like, well, the Empire itself is a structure that was built around a flawed keystone. Um, and if you can build the rest of the structure to be self-sufficient, then Empire will self-perpetuate. Yeah. And I mean, before we leave this topic, I also want to say I think no military, even the most despotic and horrific, would think it's a good idea to have someone outside the command structure going around executing senior officers capriciously like Vader. <laughs> right, and that's where you have to you have to um, treat it as a theocracy. You have to treat it as a space wizard theocracy where the prerogative of the Sith is the driving guidance and the emperor the Empire is in support of that and not the other way around, that the Sith come first. Exactly. And that is a really interesting tension in the story. It's one of the things that makes Vader such a captivating character. And now I'm going to ask you a very fanboy question that's less technical. Well, maybe it is technical. You have to tell me. What is your, like, can you give me your wish list? Like, what are the kind of things you would love to see happen on screen in Star Wars? And maybe they're things that you've seen in books or you've done in role-playing campaigns. But, like, what are the kind of interesting tactical or strategic things you'd like to see play out on screen if you were if you were the emperor of the Star Wars narrative universe? I mean, I think one of the things um, we see a little bit, but like I want to see more things. Um, you want to see more things break. You want to see like very clearly when like 
I know the battles are messy or battles are inconclusive. Um, one of the nice things really about the fact that Star Wars has had now three, I think, um, like three different television shows that go into some great length of what the wars look like on the ground level when we're like not glued to the perspective of the Skywalkers. And so you see things right in the, uh, in the Tartakovsky um, Clone Wars cartoon, there's a, there's like a two part episode. It's like six minutes total, which is totally silent or like not totally silent. It's wordless broadly or mostly where you have a droid army sent to protect a like banking plant planet and the banking plant has a whole other uh, pile of George Lucas mistakes we're going to shove to the side but you have this droid army there <laughs> and then you have them facing like Republic commandos and you get to watch what does the Clone War actually look like what does it mean when you have um, that play out and so you get to see like a lot of really interesting stuff I've seen um, one of the things I would have said a few years ago is actually you want to see a like a battle that sucks, right? And like not like that, like you want it to be cinematically uninteresting, but you wanted to see a battle where it's very clear, um, where like it's unclear who the enemy is and it's very clear that the people doing the fighting are just miserable and slogging along. Um, and Solo actually gave us that, right? When we see Han Solo as Imperial Infantry, um, it feels like the opening of Starship Troopers. It feels like that kind of thing yeah, yeah. where you have this this sweeping, you know this military is powerful, and then you're in the shit of it, um, and every part of it is bad. And that's what war is experienced like for the vast majority of people experiencing it as fighting. Um, and I think that was a really good move. Problems with Solo notwithstanding, I think that was a really interesting way to put that in the Star Wars universe. So what you're saying is like what undercuts Star Wars' ability to be a war movie, uh, you know, notwithstanding the name, or to be about war, is that it always has to revert back to these grand, fantastical, heroic narratives. I mean, and you can have, like, the, the trick, right, is I don't need it to be gritty. I'm not, like... Star Wars, <laughs> gritty Star Wars reboot. Here we go. <laughs> right, that that's what we're that's what we're doing here. No, um, because Star Wars can play in great, but I think what I want to see more right is where, and we really like. I think actually, um, the battles of the Last Jedi are broadly, I think, underrated. Um, I think just cinematically, and also when like that tech Twitter, they're very clear. Like, no, 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 Rogue One is good, and Last Jedi is bad. What are bombs doing falling in space? It's like, it's a World War II movie. The ships all have gravity. You're not questioning anything else about space until this point. Get over that. But um, what we see, right, with the, the last sand battle um, on that, with, like, you see the trenches, and you see, like, the, the modified ATT walker, you see, right, like, this is what ultimately, right, like, what forcing the question by force is about um, is that at some point, there is enough, like, there is nowhere really left to run, and then you're just stuck, right? Like, it feels like that moment in Helm's Deep um, when they're, like, handing the swords to, like, the 12-year-olds. Um, it has that same feel where, like, the stakes are real and the resources are meager. Um, and I think... I think the stakes being real is really more what is missing. It's not that it needs to be gritty. It's that um, after the first Star War, it's hard to say. And the Empire, Empire Strikes Back did a good job of making like making defeat part of it, that the heroes are not It's um, going to come out unquestioned. 
Um, but it's it's tricky to see, and we will see if J.J. Abrams gives us moments where not just we know who the players are and we know like what the plot outcome is, but we know that there are people in the scene who have come to this point who realize the magnitude of the battle and the limitations of the what they're bringing. I wish I could be optimistic. I feel like the, the thing about Abrams is the reason people want him back is he's not going to do that in the way that it happened in Rogue One or in The Last Jedi. I will also say, I mean, I could be wrong, but I'll also say that I do think that the Luke Skywalker, uh, you know, sending basically the phantom version of himself into that battle is is like a tremendously underrated Star Wars moment. And I and I wish all of the Star Wars fans who can't stop complaining would just let themselves appreciate how fucking cool that was. And how it's, it's so like, cool. <laughs> yeah, it might be the coolest use of force in the in all, uh, you know, whatever, 11 movies we've had so far. And it's one of the one of the things I think that um they're like the way the force plays into it is fundamentally um, at odds with these being war movies. Um, I mean, we see it right. Vader very clearly uses it as as a direct means to power. Um, but we see from from Obi Wan on, right? From Obi Wan's duel, what he um, and like it's not like the fanciest sword fighting, but the fact that Obi Wan chooses surrender to allow escape is a powerful moment about what the force means in narrative and when we see Yoda continually caution um Luke against fighting and then we have the prequel showing like oh they tried all the fighting they could um and it was super inept because they didn't understand that they were fighting the wrong thing or they were missing the problem right they were dealing with an immediate galactic crisis and not getting at the the dark forces manipulating the galaxy to that crisis. Um, and so Luke having the the closing duel being a projection of a duel um, is incredible. And it plays a lot of like, what is the role of the force? And is the role of the force as a tool to facilitate the whim of the person using it? Does it ask for various different things? Um, excellent mechanic. I uh, am happy that Rian got it right in Jedi, in Last Jedi. I um, am not putting a lot of stake in how it will be handled in the new film. Kelsey, can I recommend a series to you? Please. Okay. So there is actually, let me, let me grab a quote real quick here, guys. Um, Space opera the way it ought to be. Buhold and Weber bend the knee. Interstellar adventure has a new king, and it's Walter John Williams, George R.R. R. Martin. So uh, this is uh, the book I'd like you to check out is Dread Empire's Fall. And the basic idea behind it is that there is a there's a galaxy spanning empire run by a race of near immortal beings and the last one dies off. And so it's like humanity and all of these other species are sort of trapped in this uh the civilization based upon like the manners and whims of this alien race that is now gone. And they're slowly realizing that it's a free for all that what they have isn't an empire anymore. It's just a bunch of, of snobby servant nobles trying to hold together and compete for advantage. And it's, it's a fascinating read. And what you were saying about the nature of the empire really resonated with me in relationship to those books. Awesome. I think I'll have to, Check that out. I think um, perhaps uh, through through no no mystery why, but I think what does it mean to be empire in decline, and what does empire in decline look like, and what 
does the collapse mean for the structure an empire supported um, is a question that is uh, more pertinent now than it was um, when Return of the Jedi <laughs> was made. Yeah, yeah. gee. <laughs> I mean, what do you think of like, okay, that, that leads me to a, a good question as we wind down a little bit here. But like, you know, what, uh, if any, like interesting sort of novel lessons can we as people living in a declining, perhaps collapsing and certainly still very violent empire draw from the Star Wars universe? Well, I think the clearest one is to, um, if you're looking for resiliency, do not look at what the Empire is doing. I think one of the um, better choices made in Force Awakens um, that was carried over very well into Last Jedi, right, is you're looking at, um, as a little bummed, right, we see the First Order, it's like, oh, are they the Empire again? And like, no, they're the neo-Nazi version of the Empire, Um and like we know, right? We know empire doesn't work. What we and we have to wrestle with the fact that it doesn't work, and that it but its adherents still have power and can still accumulate and use power. Um, and I think it's just worth, like, obviously, clearly figuring out what what that distinction is. And I think um, you know, it's that it's that not are we the baddies bit, right? Like it's obvious that uh, <laughs> ongoing decades long war um, makes undeniable circumstances where people will for generations have reasons to know us only as the baddies. And I think what you have to look at, and this is like my, my pet thing is that I wish we'd seen more of what the new Republic was in force awakens or before force awakens. If we had some glimpse of like, how did they fuck up enough that we get to the point where it's basically neo-Nazis versus uh, second generation partisan rebels. Um, but we don't know what, like, we don't know what the moments of collapse look like. We know what after the collapse looks like. We can point to that. We have plenty of analogies for after the collapse. Um, and what does it mean to try and steer differently? Um, and I think the... Fundamentally, I think the the lesson um, broadly of the 2010s is that holding on to power and assuming good stewardship is enough to um, guarantee that it will not be used irresponsibly is uh, a pay is a far accomplishes far less than actively dismantling power um, and structures of power. Um, yeah. I mean, I think that's a very sobering and important lesson, and I'm glad that we got there from the story about the space wizards with magical swords. <laughs> um, but Kelsey, uh, this has been really great. We could go, we could go longer, but I think it's probably a good time to move towards the ending. And on that note, I want to ask you what uh, what of yours do you want to plug? Sure. So, um, I, I first Photor Pod. If you're very interested in looking at the um, we're going through the narrative now of uh, Knights of the Old Republic 2. I'm working with uh, with Luke at Luke is amazing um, on Twitter. He's, he's good. He does good work on that. Uh, it's a really interesting way to look at how Star Wars was like narratively constructed in the expanded universe. Um, we talk about canon. We're going to keep an eye on what will what expanded universe canon will become canon again or reaffirmed by the new movies. That's the most Star Wars thing I'm doing. Um, Grand Blog Tarkin is uh, long dormant. It might, I don't know, someone might send me something and I might put it up, but that is, grand, uh, that is blogtarkin.wordpress.com. 
um, that's that's still there. There's still plenty of stuff going back and forth about like what is electromagnetic warfare in the Star Wars universe even like? Um, is the new X-wing really an F thirty five or not? All all sorts of things that are <laughs> definitely not deep niche topics. Um, my journalism is out there at C four ISR net. Um, that it's a it's a Pentagonese term. Don't just C four ISR net, but there's lots of stuff there about what robots at war are like in the real world. Um, and then the last thing I should plug, um, which I realize this is a lot, but uh, if you are poking around for a book about Star Wars and strategy and you want to hear what uh, literal people involve in strategic decisions ranging from like freaking actual General McChrystal um, to uh, weird journalists like myself write about Star Wars, the book is called Strategy Strikes Back. And it's a bunch of essays about strategy in the Star Wars universe. Cool. And I will also add, you should all follow Kelsey D. Atherton on Twitter because you do some good tweets. <laughs> Thank you. Agreed. Yeah. I think that's probably where we're going to wrap it. And gosh, Kelsey, thank you. I have learned a ton in this episode. It's really, really interesting. And this has been cool. Yeah. And one of these days, whether it's about Star Wars or something else to do with war, uh, we're definitely going to have you back on to talk about more rosy topics. Yeah, holler, uh, holler when you get to a Star Trek in Wars. I was able to get a a review about Star Trek Beyond as a Star as a Star Trek war movie into Popsi years ago. So that was holler, holler then. Yeah, you know, I I was actually going to make a joke about bringing you on for Star Trek War, but like if you're game, that'd I am be amazing. Present down for Star Trek War, a very different style of war movie in space yeah all right cool all right well uh thanks so much kelsey and thank you everyone who's listening for uh you know listening to us break down the virtues of admiral akbar's strategic acumen i'm sure you learned a lot take care <laughs> bye thanks guys